Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... So our job, first and foremost, is to ensure that we look after and we protect and we watch that capital because that is hundreds of thousands of Australians that have entrusted us with their money. How does a 16-year-old schoolboy who left Ukraine for Australia in the early 1990s speaking not a word of English manage to excel first at university here and then in various financial services companies before backing himself with a few uni friends into a startup in the small and at the time little understood ETF industry in Australia. Well, that's exactly what immigrant Alex Vinokur did when he co-founded, and he's now the CEO, of BetaShares ETFs or Exchange Traded Funds. In a dozen years since, Alex Vinokur has built BetaShares into a company managing $23 billion in investor capital, offering over 65 funds to invest in and employing 85 Australians. ETFs, which mimic the performance of various indexes, has become a major disruptor in the wealth management game. And BetaShares ETFs is one homegrown company helping to revolutionise the way Aussies can invest. In part one of our chat, Alex reveals at least one of his secret weapons, mastering chess as a boy back in the old country. Alex Vinokur, great to have you on the program, the co-founder, I believe, of BetaShares ETFs. Thank you so much for joining us on Build It, They'll Come. It's great to be here. Now, you have been building your business for really just over a decade, so I guess you don't consider yourself a startup anymore. Uh, no, I I do wonder at what stage we can formally no longer be a startup. But, but you don't feel like you're in startup mode still. Of course. Um, I think it's fair to say that, that we love uh, hanging on to so many things from our early uh, startup days. Uh, the innovation never, and the agility, no doubt. Absolutely. So I definitely hope we don't lose that. But yes, I think I'll be stretching it if I uh, try to uh, call ourselves a startup right now. Alex, can you just give a picture to the few novices that might be out there? What exactly is an ETF? Uh, great question. Still a question we got asked a lot. ETF uh, stands for an exchange traded fund. An exchange traded fund um, has, has essentially been revolutionizing for investors around the world uh, the way they have been investing. It combines the cost effectiveness and the diversification of an index fund with the convenience and real ease of being able to buy and sell your investment as easily as buying or selling a share on the ASX. So it is traded on the exchange, on Indeed. the securities exchange, the ASX. Absolutely. So your funds, they only follow established indexes. This is the other thing that I think many people get confused about, because I understand you don't just follow the very established indexes. You follow sectors and you might follow certain other things. How do you arrange your funds? All right. That's a great question, Helen. So look, we currently manage over 65 different funds. 
And a large number of those funds follow very established indices, such as NDQ, which is the NASDAQ 100 ETF, or F100, which is the FTSE 100 ETF. So those are very well known um, to, to most uh, investors, especially over the last decade since our business has been around. There's been a tremendous amount of innovation in the way indices are constructed. So if previously, we, when we talked about indices, we'd say NASDAQ, FTSE 100, ASX 200. Today, we have seen a great deal of innovation. And today, the way investors allocate is not just to follow broad-based indices, but also, for instance, to include sustainable indices and ESG indices. At the same time, there is also a big wave of development of thematic ETFs. So for example, Global Cybersecurity, Hack, is a thematic ETF. Global Robotics is another uh, example. Climate change innovation is another example. So I think over the past decade, we have seen significant growth of the ETF industry. Of course, our business has been a significant beneficiary, but that really has been off the back of a lot of innovation on the part of the industry around what an index really means. And can I just clarify even more, and perhaps this shows my denseness, but when you talked about those thematic funds, are you grouping them together actively or is S&P grouping them under an indice? They are being grouped or put together as an index by an independent index right, firm. By someone else like Indeed. Standard & Poor's. Absolutely. Or... So S&P is a great example. Uh, MSCI, of course, there's FTSE, there's NASDAQ. You know, there are a lot of index firms out there. And that is really an interesting innovation, I think, in the world of indexing. So initially, indices were really only being regarded as a benchmark that an active manager is trying to outperform. As soon as the world, and this has been now a few decades ago, as soon as the world has moved where indices have become investable, the innovation has taken off. And today we see indices come in different uh, shapes and sizes, ultimately allowing investors to make better investment decisions. And sort of more widely stretched over a number of companies. They don't just have to go for one tech company in the United States. They can go for the top 100 for on sure. the NASDAQ. Look, a great example I could I could pick up again in, you know, that I mentioned before, say the Global Cybersecurity ETF hack. Most investors you would come across would agree with you if you, if you were to put to them that Global Cybersecurity in industry is an industry that's very well placed to grow for decades ahead because, of course, nobody's stopping people on the streets anymore and asking for wallets. You know, people people tend to steal basically and do bad things with data and, 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 and capital or whatever digitally. So, so the whole security uh, structure is moving into the cloud. And, and cybersecurity companies, are, are obviously, as an industry, are positioned really well to protect and, of course, take advantage of the opportunity. Now, if you're an investor in Australia, if you're an investor in, in the UK, in the US, very few people know which companies to pick in that space. And in many ways, it actually doesn't matter which individual stock uh, or two. What you really want is to have exposure to that growing megatrend. And ETFs provide very convenient and cost-effective exposure to a megatrend such as cybersecurity. So back to BetaShares, your company. Yes. You're not really a stock picker. Absolutely not. Um, so we would, are the sorry, anti- so do you consider yourself a passive investor, not an active investor? We are a fund manager, first of all, that is today looking after over 23 billion of investor capital. 
So our job, first and foremost, is to ensure that we look after and we protect and we watch that capital because that is hundreds of thousands of Australians that have entrusted us with their money. For somebody, it's their deposit for a house. For somebody, it's their retirement savings. For somebody, it is money that they're saving for their grandkids' education. So first and foremost, we are fiduciary and we're looking after people's capital. In terms of how we're looking after that capital is by managing a number of exchange-traded funds. Those exchange-traded funds predominantly are tracking an index. Those indices sometimes are very vanilla and very boring, such as the ASX 200. We all, we all know them. And sometimes they're as exciting as the global cybersecurity, but they are index tracking, which means that our mandate is to ensure that our funds deliver exactly what they say on the tin. And the beauty of an ETF is that the expectation of an investor is very clearly met when the ETF delivers on its objective of tracking that index. So that is really at the core of what, uh, of what we do. So you are not an active investor. You manage funds under management. You gave us a bit of a picture, but paint us this picture of what BetterShares ETFs has become in what, really just a decade? Look, our business has started, like all businesses do, with very humble beginnings. Well, before we get to the humble beginnings, yes. where are you at now? You said $23 billion yes. under management, in funds under management. So yes. that's everybody's money. They give it to you. That's And that's right. what you're investing, obviously. That's, yes, that's absolutely right. The growth of beta shares is very much not just a reflection of, of the great work that we're doing, as much as I would love to claim the credit. It is partly uh, because of the great work that our team is doing, partly because the industry overall is doing really well. And our job, first and foremost, is really to ensure that we continue investing time, effort, and energy in growing the pie. I have certainly seen firsthand the difference that our ETFs make to investors. You mentioned previously uh, the point around active versus passive. Are we an active manager or passive? We certainly manage money, obviously, uh, according to index benchmarks, but investors uh, the vast majority of investors are actively thinking about their money. So what we really do with our ETFs is provide our investors the tools to make investment decisions that are appropriate for them. And what we have seen over time is that the vast majority of investors are building low-cost and diversified core of their portfolio, and then they'll have a number of exposures around that core, which sometimes in trade speak we'll call satellite exposures, and allow them to achieve the investment objectives that they set out for themselves. ETFs have really always marketed themselves as either cheaper or cost-effective, I think you, yes. you is the way you put it. And in a way, the returns just mirror, don't they, the index returns. So if the index goes up by 6%, 5%, 10%, that's what you do? Or do you outperform the index? Yes, we uh, aim to track the indices that our funds are, are benchmarked to. So your performance mimics the index. So if it goes up, that's good. If it goes down, your fund goes down as well. Of course, of course. And and again, within the 65 plus funds that we manage, there'll be a variety of funds, you know, starting with something as boring as cash, but important uh, to be able to make sure that your cash works hard for everyone. Then going on to fixed income, you know, floating rate bonds, investment grade corporate bonds, government bonds. Yeah, so some and of then, those of course, would have a number, and then done a very badly over yes. the last five, 10 years. Exactly, exactly. But on the flip side, of course, the equities uh, portion of the component would have done very well. So if you think about the investment universe, which includes all asset classes, that is essentially the range that we're managing at BetaShares. So you'll find very defensive investment exposure 
exposures within our range, you'll find some high growth investment exposures in our range. So you started in 2010, as my calculations go, and you know, by right from 2011, you seem to add a new fund every six months or year. You you appear to be very aggressive, very progressive and very agile right from the get-go. Was that really part of what you were trying to achieve from the very start? Yeah, look, I think I think agile and progressive are definitely the words that will resonate. You don't like aggressive. <laughs> look, aggressive, a- aggressive can be interpreted by different people in, in, in different ways. Sure. Where we are aggressive is in setting the bar for ourselves in order to improve. Each year we restart. But the innovation part of, of, of our DNA is definitely very consistent across the entire business. And you're absolutely right, Helen. We have been challenging ourselves each year to continue adding value by launching uh, relevant investment solutions that can stand the test of time. Each product we launch, we scrutinize quite a lot internally in order to make sure that we avoid launching funds which could potentially reflect reflect a particular fad. So, you know, like the great reopening that, that some people are talking about right now or the lockdown trade, basically, those sorts of things are not really uh, for us. We really tend to focus on genuine long-term investment exposures. But the reason why we have been launching as many funds every year, Helen, is because we're learning every year. And the one thing that's very clear to us is that Australian market, like most other investment markets, is not a homogeneous market. We have different types of investor uh, in the market. The early adopters, for example, of our ETFs were sophisticated SMSFs that have had a lot of experience that have previously invested either by picking their own stocks or by uh, entrusting their capital to active managers. And they were the early wave of adoption. Uh, We've then seen significant rate of adoption from financial advisors. I mean, today, you know, almost three quarters of all financial advisors in Australia uh, recommend ETFs to their clients, basically. But even they have reduced in number, of course. Of course, they're reducing in number, but they're definitely increasing in their reliance of ETFs to deliver investment outcomes for their clients. And of course, over the past few years, we have seen a great wave of younger investors, sort of a new generation of investors. Many of them are investing for the first time. Yeah, I want to talk so, about that so a little that, bit that goes later. So, some way to hopefully explain why we have been evolving our product suite with each year. Each year we've been uh, we've been in business. Yeah, would you say you've actually benefited enormously from the explosion, really, in SMSF funds? Short answer is yes. SMSF uh, investors sometimes don't get enough credit for the sophistication uh, that they display in their investments. Uh, the early portfolios, and a lot, of, a lot of media reports, of course, go to cover that most SMSFs in Australia own the big four banks, Telstra and Woolies, basically, in their portfolios, and a bit of property and a bit of cash. We have definitely seen SMSF investors embrace the globalization uh, of markets and have really tapped growth opportunities outside of Australia. And that is, from our perspective, of course, benefited ETFs because as soon as investors start thinking about diversifying their portfolios overseas, ETFs would be one of the most convenient and cost-effective ways of doing so. But I would absolutely credit the SMSF segment for breaking ground basically in in that regard and certainly making a significant dent in what has historically been described as the home country bias in Australian investment portfolios. Yeah, well, it was interesting. I mean, you were not the first ETFs in Australia. You know, there were others before you. But when you launched, say, the fund following the NASDAQ 100 index, you were the very first Australian fund to do that, as I understand. Why was no one else doing it? And 
How much of a risk was it for you to go ahead and launch that product? First and foremost, it wasn't without risk. When we started the business in very early days, we actually gravitated towards launching some exposures aligned with the with the way investors used to invest. So our first two funds were Australian Resources Sector yeah. ETF and Australian Financial Sector ETF. And and what did we know? I mean, we had no clients at the time, and and the best thing you know I could come up with uh, you know at the time is let's make investing in resources and financials in Australia easy. And and we've learned some lessons. We have seen some adoption of those products, but what I'd say is that in early days we've learned to listen to clients more and more. And of course, in day one, we had no clients, so there was nobody to listen to. But as we continued to grow the business and, and we had always gone about our business by under-promising and over-delivering to our clients. Best we, way to be, right? <laughs> look, it reflects who we are. And you know, over time, we have built relationships, we've built trust, and we have built confidence in saying we do not only want to cater to the existing needs of customers, but we actually want to take a step forward and say, this is what our market will need over time. And in the case of the NASDAQ 100 ETF, it was a great example. It was certainly not our first um, ETF. We've launched many others before, and it took us some time to get there, but we've essentially formed the view that our job is not only to facilitate what people want already, but to actually educate and provide those solutions for where we thought the park was going to be. Yeah, but still with that particular fund, you jumped off where other Australian funds hadn't. Yes. So that was pretty adventurous. It was adventurous. It was adventurous. And it was also adventurous talking to people in early days about an exposure such as the NASDAQ 100 and answering questions, you know, why there are no franking credits when you buy Amazon and, and, uh, and Google and some of the other stocks. So yes, there was some explaining to do, but aren't we glad that we did it? Let's step back. Where and how did the idea for BetaShares come up? Was it actually your idea to start this business? Uh, yes. Look, again, uh, success is many fathers. And again, I certainly think that we are very far uh, from what I would regard as successful. We still have a long way to go. But yes, I have, prior to starting uh, BetaShares, worked in financial services. And I have had exposure from pretty early days to traditional active funds management, to financial planning, as well as a number of other uh, areas within the financial services sector. And it was very apparent for me from pretty early days that looking at the funds management market, where over 90% of our assets were actively managed, whilst 75% of active managers underperformed their benchmark after fees, kind of seemed to me like an unsustainable situation. And I certainly at the time did not know where the equilibrium is going to be. Is it going to be 50-50, 70-30, 30-70? But I thought there's going to be enough in it to start a business. And that's when I started uh, getting a few of my um, a few of my friends together. Some of them are university friends. Some of them are people that I've just met through other walks of life to, to really start laying, you know, sort of the foundations of, of what is today Peter shares. It was was there a thought about unfairness when you were just talking then about, you know, that a lot of active managers in these days in the 2000s, that they were underperforming? Did you think, well, that's unfair for investors? We need to have some sort of better system that you can say there is more of a likelihood that you will do as, as well as the index. Look, no question about it. First of all, it seemed unfair, and it is. The biggest issue in the small sort of distinction between unfairness and, and what, I, what, what I did want to say is that 
I spent a lot of time thinking about incentives in the system. Because again, you, you look at the facts and say, okay, well, 90% plus of assets are actively managed. You have 75% of managers, active managers underperform. Well, something's wrong. Like, you know, other people are stupid and they're not, right? Yeah. Or there's something else at play. Yeah. So, so what was at play was the incentives in the system. Financial advisors historically used to get paid for recommending products yeah. to their clients. They used to receive kickbacks and ETFs were never playing on a level playing field previously because ETFs never pay a commission and right. they never pay they never pay kickback. So they never got pushed. They never got recommended. Yeah. They never yeah. got recommended on merit. And that's why we started BetaShares several years into the journey, as in several years after my initial you had the idea. Uh, observations, because because the question is, what's going to be the catalyst? I mean, you can you can scream until you're blue in the face that that ETS can do better, but if the likelihood of people recommending these funds depends on recommending something else, then you may not have a lot of luck. So that was the first. Uh, the first catalyst was the early days of what had become uh, subsequently FOFA. So FOFA was the legislative change which effectively stopped financial advisors from receiving conflicted remuneration. That was number one. Number two was a significant growth in our SMSF sector. So SMSFs today, of course, represent a very significant portion of our superannuation industry, right? It's over a third or about a third of our super. And super itself is now in the trillions of dollars, basically, that, we, uh, you know, that we're measuring. And that was clearly a factor as well. So the number of SMSFs investors uh, was increasing. Access to investments was improving. And we thought at the time there was a great opportunity to start, to start the business. So you thought that. What did your family and friends think? Because in 2009, ETFs were not not that well known, nor were they very well understood, certainly by the retail market. Yes, it was the vast majority of people that I have spoken to at the time have thought that I'm crazy. <laughs> that, is, that is true. Um, and look, of course, uh, the reason is because ETFs were small in Australia. It was a tiny industry. So how are you going to make money out of it? How this? are you going to make money yeah. out of it? Secondly, uh, we're up against three of the largest uh, global fund managers, you know, with BlackRock, Vanguard, Vanguard, and State Street are all operating in the yeah. market. Giants. And giants, around the world. right? Yeah. Global giants. So, so were you crazy? Probably. <laughs> in fact, I, sh I should say definitely. Um, uh, definitely. And then on top of that, uh, my first child was born in 2008. So we had a young, we had a young family. It was an interesting time to, uh, to start the business. You were working, as I understand, around that time or, or at that time for Malcolm Turnbull's investment, his uh, capital company. Why not stay working for somebody else, no doubt earning great living, not having to take on all the responsibility of making this work? Why did you want to back yourself? Look, that probably goes to my upbringing a little bit. I was certainly born with an idea of independence uh, and an idea of, of backing yourself. Were your folks entrepreneurial or did they expect a lot from you? You're uh, from look, an immigrant my, family. Yeah, look, my folks, I, I, was born, I was born in Ukraine during the times of Soviet Union. So Soviet Union is certainly not a country that was welcoming uh, of entrepreneurs. However, I have certainly, I have certainly benefited from the entrepreneurial family members. And, and my grandfather in particular was, was a individual who was entrepreneurial against all odds. When we immigrated to Australia, which was in 1994, I first of all observed with quite a lot of amazement as to how much choice there is in Australia. Choice from everything like walking into supermarket and having different brands of bread and different brands of juice or whatever else, whereas I've never seen it as I was growing up, to the fact that people 
can actually start a business and build something from scratch. I was absolutely fascinated from my early days in Australia about the opportunities that this country has to offer. And I was hoping from those early days that maybe one day I will have an opportunity to, to do something like that as well. I don't want to skip over, obviously, your, your heritage from Ukraine, and uh, you must be feeling very sad at the moment and angry. Have you got family back there? How are you feeling about the huge upheaval that's going on there? Yeah, look, it's it is uh, devastating for me to to um, to observe what's what's going on there. I do have family back in Ukraine, and I have a lot of friends uh, that that I went to school with that are really struggling at the moment. So yeah, it is it is a very difficult time. It is a very difficult time. Oh, it's just awful what's happening. But just back to if I could take you back to working for Malcolm Turnbull. I know you've talked about him in a very positive light before. He obviously went on to become Australia's Prime Minister, but. What do you think you might have learnt from working either at that firm or from him that you brought with you into BetaShares? I think I certainly acquired a great deal of confidence in him in backing myself. So he gave you confidence? Yes. I have seen both with him as well as a lot of other entrepreneurs that I have met and a lot of other people that I have met in the time that we have worked together you know, both both the good and the bad in terms of, you know, new business ventures not always working out. There's always a lot of lessons to be learned. So definitely, definitely the the confidence uh, to back yourself. Look, I mean, the one, the one incredible skill that he does possess, and I haven't worked, uh, you know, with Malcolm in politics, so I can't really comment on the political, uh, you know, sort of side of things, of course, but an ability to really focus on the, on the nub of the issue, basically, so ability to look at a huge set of data and maybe a hundred pages worth of reports and actually find something that really matters out of it and call it out is pretty, pretty impressive. Pretty mm. impressive. Mm. Did he tip any money in at the beginning? Did he back you financially? No, no, he was in politics. That was not the, uh, that was not the time. So he was not doing financial stuff then. But when you decided to start this business, was there a business plan? Were you very careful about that side of things or did you just sort of have a few ideas written on a few pages and that was it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Look, I grew up, as, as we mentioned before, in Soviet Union, in Soviet Ukraine, like a lot of other Soviet kids, learned how to play chess uh, pretty early in my life. And the one thing they teach you when you learn to play chess is that you always need to have a game plan in mind before you sit down with an opponent to play. But at the same time, you have to watch what your opponent is doing. And if you just continue following your game plan uh, without having any regard to what your opponent is doing, you'll get cleaned up very quickly and you'll lose. That is probably the best parallel in building a plan for the business in that, yes, it is important to have a plan and we did have a plan. But it is also fair to say that where we are today reflects very little of that original business plan yeah. and a lot about observing how the market around us is evolving or what moves the market is making uh, and competitors are making. So again, being flexible. Absolutely. Being flexible, you know, right now is no different uh, for our business than it was when we started. And that's certainly one of the things that I was alluding to early on when we were just a startup, uh, that ability to be flexible or agile, as is now even more popular to say, yeah. is really critical. And observing, uh, continuing to have a game plan in mind, for sure, and a business plan, but at the same time, carefully observing what is happening on the other side of the board and adjusting your strategy accordingly. I'm fascinated about, can you just give us a little bit of colour around 
being taught to play chess in the Soviet Union? Was that at school? Was it in a local club? Did only the super bright kids get taught? And were you were they trying to lead you through to be some national champion? Uh, look, I wasn't. Uh, I actually thought uh, that I'm pretty good at chess until I've met some people who are much, much, much <laughs> better uh, than I was. But look, I was taught uh, to play chess by my grandfather, right. who I mentioned before, and I played a lot, you know, with him as as well as my father. So it wasn't a system trying to teach all the bright kids how to play chess. It was uh, your own family. I, I started very young in the family, but the system certainly had a big focus on, wow. on, on, on chess as well. So yes, I did play chess uh, at school and, and outside of school as well. Do you still get a chance to play? I play with my children and they're both are better than I am. Really? So and are they what, young kids? They're 13 and 11. Um, and I tell you what, it was it was a proud uh, proud moment as a father to have my daughter, who is eleven, wipe the chessboard with me. <laughs> you had had experience, as you mentioned before, at other wealth businesses, and as we said, with Malcolm Turnbull and his investment business. Where did you get the funding from when you started? Was it your own capital that you'd been able to earn and save? Did you mortgage your house? Did you go to banks? Did you just go to other friends and family and beg, borrow, and not steal? But yeah. <laughs> uh, meta- metaphorically. The early, early money was just kind of savings, basically, and then friends and family. And, and over time, it's, um, you know, sort of it's grown, it's grown from there. How did you convince the first customers who weren't friends and family to come with you to invest in your funds? And how difficult was that? Look, I've got a head of distribution in our business, uh, or today head of distribution, was our first salesperson. He had the powers of persuasion that I'll never, I'll never have. Wow. But he himself made a great call in joining our business, but also a great sacrifice. I mean, we couldn't afford to pay him what he was being paid uh, in his, in his, in his previous job. And I still remember the day when we sat in the room with him and he showed me his payslip from, uh, from his then current employer. And he said, Alex, I'm taking whatever it was, a $50,000 pay cut to come join BetaShares, but that's what I'm doing. And he literally like tore up basically his other contract and he came on board with us. And was he a game changer? Oh, he, I mean, for sure. He absolutely is a key uh, ingredient in our success story uh, in the business. And we have so many people. I mean, it is incredible how many people we have in the business today that have been on this journey with me for over 10 years. And a lot have been on the journey for over five years. And today we have people joining the business and I look at them and I think that is going to be the future of, of BetaShares. That's going to be the future of, of, of the business. So it is definitely, definitely the case with us. It's not a success story, which is made by one person. It is very much a, a, a big, big, uh, you know, team effort. Yeah, and, and a commitment by a lot of commitment people. Commitment by a lot of people. And it feels to me that we are just getting started. So you completely from scratch, you grew to 1 billion fund in funds under management within four years, which really that's a huge achievement. And then to 10 billion in funds under management. So your website tells us within a decade. How difficult was that? A step at a time. I would say I've always been a big believer in taking things a step at a time. It has been difficult. Nothing but I mean, comes that's easy. a big, that's a rapid scale up, it isn't is. it? It is that a rapid scale up. You had to manage and yeah. deal with. Yes, of course, of course. But um, 
I also feel that we have been building the business for over a decade to be ready for this. And my view on, on life in business is that sometimes you put in a lot of effort and, and you get undercompensated for doing, for, for doing a lot. And sometimes you get overcompensated for doing a lot. It's very hard to tell whether we are being uh, overcompensated with, with success or undercompensated over long term. I think what's important is to continue uh, focusing on things that we can control, and that is delivering high-quality investment products to our clients, continue being very upfront uh, with our clients about what's happening in the market. So one of the one of the beauties of being in the ETF business is that we can call a spade a spade. You know, unlike, for example, somebody who specializes in Australian equities and that's all you have, you know, you have an incentive to just talk up Aussie equities. You might be sitting here just before the GFC when the market crashed 50% and you'll still be talking up the prospects of Australian equities because that's all you do. The blessing with running uh, a business which has significant diversification across all asset classes is that you genuinely can call the spade a spade. And if, if our house view is that equities are not a good place to be, then we'll tell our investors that it's not a good place to be. And I think for a lot of clients, it is quite refreshing to have that relationship with a fund manager where they're actually not trying to talk them into investing more into a particular strategy or stay invested in a particular strategy. We'll actually call it like it is. Do you consider yourself a disruptor? In short, yes. We are disrupting, underperforming members of the asset management uh, industry. I think we're also disrupting indirectly the experience of investing for Australia. So when, when, when we started the company, for most investors, the experience involved printing out a prospectus or printing out a product disclosure statement, PDS, filling out an application form for a particular fund, and then scanning that and emailing or faxing it through to the fund manager. I think one of the greatest learnings, Helen, for me over the past 10 plus years is not only around the fact that that passive can represent can be better represented against active in, in that equilibrium, and who knows where that is, and not only the fact that indices themselves and ETFs have evolved significantly over time, in that we've seen a lot of innovation as to what it means to to, to be uh, an index manager, as we talked about before. But the key thing that I was missing at the time of starting the company is that the experience that investors demand today is the same experience of convenience that we now get to expect in consuming our music, uh, in consuming our entertainment more generally with media, in consuming news, in booking travel, and everything else. I think the, the big disruption of ETFs uh, is, around, is around consumer experience. That feels like a great spot to take a break. We're going to ask Alex Vinokur to come back and talk to us. We'll have part two next week. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you, Helen. Next week in part two, Alex Vinokur reveals how millennials and Gen Zers are changing the game in exchange-traded funds how innovation in wealth management is absolutely critical and what makes his business fly. Join me then. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea 
into an empire.